Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Silent Killer Gas Passer. Mr. Silent Killer Gas Passer. Last night you had the enchilada combo platter. This morning the three cheese omelet with broccoli. This afternoon you're a ticking time bomb. Because of you, a simple elevator ride is suddenly a 42-floor plummet into the very bowels of hell. Who did it? Who cares? Sweet mercy, please just someone light a match. So crack open an ice-cold Bud Light, oh ninja of the nasty. And while you're at it, crack open a window. Bud Light Beer, and I suppose St. Louis, Missouri. Well, I feel pretty good, actually. Right now I'm a little bit tired. Uh, we've had some hot weather in Chicago. We've played a lot of ball games. I've only missed uh, two, I think. You know, they were both in one day, so I'm a little tired. And I've lost probably eight, nine pounds the last uh, you know, week or so, but uh, I feel good, and I know that I'll get my strength back, and uh, I'm ready for my second win. You've had a, a couple of excellent years last few years, but uh, this year your hitting seems to be going even better than it did uh, last year at this point. Well, you know, we, we had, you know, some problems early. You know, none of us were hitting, and all of a sudden, you know, I started hitting, and, uh, uh, you know, Chambliss, you know, start, you know, broke out, and he drove in 12 runs, I think, in two ball games, and, uh, you know, Reggie started hitting some home runs, and Edel started hitting some home runs, and uh, when you just have a few guys doing that, you know, then you can kind of get going, and, uh, of course, you know, a lot of this other stuff in our ball club is, is you know, it's, it's overplayed a little bit, you know, by the New York media, and, uh, uh, you know, I think everybody expects us to go out and win a pennant and uh, have it all wrapped up by, uh, you know, July 1st, and then things just don't happen that way. So you don't see things going quite as easily as, as everybody else wants, wants them to go? There's some good ball clubs in this league, you know. They're a lot more, uh, you know, well-balanced. Chicago's got a team that can rip your head off if you don't watch. You know, Minnesota's hitting well. You know, you guys got a team that can steal your head off and rip it off, too. You know, and you got some good pitchers. Baltimore's got a good ball club. Boston's got a good ball club. You know, it's not just... Uh, uh, you know, you go out and all of a sudden somebody says, well, you know, there's a lot of name players in that team. Uh, name players don't mean anything when you get out to play baseball. Two balls and no strikes for Munson. Try he is. Munson hits it high, hits it well to left. Wilson going way back, way back. It is out of the hole. The damage there. You're getting
the next two two. Davis to left and will hit. Oh my! It's gone. From high atop the Robinson Gearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now here's the host of the show. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Hat man, hat podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Carolina. Back in the captain, Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. What's good, CMED Freaks? What's juicy? Want to welcome everyone back into my dojo this week as the 2023 baseball season and this BKP freight train continues to roll on. And it feels like the season is just flying by as we are now in our third month of the campaign. I can't believe how quickly the season has moved this year. Personally, as an Orioles fan... It's been one of my favorite seasons in a long time, and I'm sure you can understand why. So, maybe there is something to the old adage that time certainly flies when you're having fun. Not only can I not believe how quickly the season has gone thus far, I'm actually stunned to realize, you know, we're six months into this calendar year. I mean, not only is this baseball season moving quickly, but, you know, we're, we're six months away from walking into 2024. Now, with that being said, I cannot express enough about the lineup of shows coming this month, starting with this first one, and this has been one of the months where I've really been looking forward to getting after it, and I'm very excited about the lineup of shows I have planned the next few weeks, starting with this week's topic. And not a lot of jibba-jabba this week, because I'm ready to get right after it. We have a long, complex road ahead of us in my next story. A lot of ground to cover. I've had a lot of fun putting this week's show together. And I can't wait to paint this audio canvas with this man's bio. So, it looks like the catcher is ready to come down. And I'd like to get you last few stragglers on our BKP time travel choo-choo. I know we're running a little quick this week, but I'm going to call... All aboard! As we will be setting our time and destination for June 7th, 1947, Akron, Ohio. And this week, I'm going to take a deep dive into the man, the myth, the legend, former Yankees catcher, Thurman Munson. And I'd like to preface this by, you know, saying... I was a huge Munson fan as a kid. Well, look, fan may not be the right word. As a fan of a rival team, I'm not so sure I loved him as much as I feared and respected him. And if we're being honest, 
He scared me more than Reggie Jackson with a bat in his head. Or whenever he donned the tools of ignorance. I mean, sure, Mr. October could change the complexion of any game with just one swing of the bat. But he was also susceptible to striking out. And there was no negotiating with Munson's lover and his on-base propensity. Thurman had a fantastic batter's eye, and he would patiently look for pitchers, uh, pitches to drive into the gaps. And while sure, surely Reggie may touch you up for a dong or two in a three-game set, Thurman would consistently pound out three for five, two for four days. He was the true catalyst and the heart and soul of a team that was 12 years removed from their once empirical greatness. Throughout the 20th century and into the present, numerous luminary ballplayers have gained everlasting fame as members of the most storied baseball team in the game's history, the New York Yankees. Starting with icons Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig during the 1920s, followed by the almost mythical lineage of Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, uh, Don Mattingly, Derek Jeter, and even today with super slugger Aaron Judge. Every decade and every generation practically has produced their own stable of Yankees icons for that city to embrace into the family. During the 1970s, two players stood out among their pinstripe peers. The sweet swinging kid from Oklahoma, Bobby Mercer, he was one, and the young catcher from Ohio named Thurman Munson. As the two were links of the chain between the era of Mickey and the era of Mattingly. When shipping magnet George Steinbrenner purchased the Yankees from CBS television in 1973, it signaled the dawn of a new era, era, as the Yankees had become a mere plaything and tax write-off for the Tiffany Television Network, as the Yankees had gone nine years since their last playoff appearance before the boss rode into town with higher expectations and ambitions than his predecessors. By the time the Yankees began responding and matching the competitive goals of Mr. Steinbrenner, Mercer was already gone after being traded to the San Francisco Giants in 1973, but Munson whom George loved from day one, even though he looked like a dirty hippie with his long flowing locks reaching out from below his lids and his walrus-like mustache. He was named captain of the New York Yankees in 1976, the first to be named so since Lou Gehrig. You know that guy? And it was Thurman who played the key role in the franchise's return to dominance, the throne. From 1976 to 1978, the Boogie Down Bombers won a pair of World Series championships and three AL pennants. Munson's leadership and all-round play contributed greatly to the title wins. Unfortunately, for fans throughout the whole baseball universe, we would be robbed of truly appreciating his long-term success and any conception of what was to come as his mortal cord was cut short at the absolute pinnacle of a stellar career. 
On August 2nd, 1979, Thurman Munson was killed in a plane crash at the Canton Akron Airport in Ohio. The Yankees captain was practicing touch-and-go landings in his brand-new jet when he reportedly missed the runway by almost a 1,000 feet. The news of the tragedy spread like wildfire, and soon the devastating news was being seen on practically every television set across the nation. And I can remember this day plainly. I was eight years old, staying at my grandmother's house during the summer. We were eating dinner in the dining room with the TV on in the background. My grandfather liked to watch the news when he ate. And that's when it broke. And I remember it so clearly because <laughs> Thurman Munson was the first famous, famous person of note in my orbit to die. I, I, I vaguely remember Elvis Presley's death in 76, I believe. But I, I didn't give a shit about Elvis. I, I just remember some of the moms in the hood upset over that. But Munson was the first real person of any consequence in my prepubescent universe to die. I remember feeling like the sad loss. And it had never occurred to me that a famous, a famous person at their height of power could die. Certainly not a baseball player, professional athlete like Thurman Munson, who was such an integral part of my baseball youth. I couldn't believe, quite frankly, I think most fans couldn't believe it. I think we were all waiting for like this alternate, alternate universe mistake to unfold or you know, some kind of miracle of misinformation, maybe. But it never came. Fans everywhere, of every persuasion, every team, they had to confront the harsh reality of the void left behind in the wake of this horrifying tragedy. Back in New York, the vaunted skyline of the Empire State was dotted throughout the morning city with flags flying at half-staff at the behest of Governor Andrew Cuomo. His teammates, they loved and admired his toughness and loyalty to the team, while his rivals respected him as, you know, this hard-nosed competitor who could do everything, you know, who's going to do everything in his power to win. The burly backstop, who was built like a fire hydrant with legs, was also well-known for his tumultuous relationships with George Steinbrenner, Reggie Jackson, and Red Sox catcher Carlton Fisk. Munson played every game with the intensity of a Game 7 in the World Series. And the Yankee fans adored him for it. Off the field, he was a quiet, proud man who loved his life as a father and husband. He was funny, but he was a gruff leader of a band of fucking baseball misfits. And he made everyone better on the roster with just his mere presence. Durbin, Lee, Munson... God damn, that's a fucking manly name. He's born June 7th, 1947. He was the youngest of four children born to Daryl Vernon Munson and Ruth Mina Munson, who was always affectionately called Smile. Daryl became a long-distance trucker after serving in World War II. While his father was considered affable enough, he was really remembered for his off-disagreeable temperament and disposition and he and Thurman had what can only be described as a strained relationship for much of his life if Thurman went four for four 
with a pass ball. His father would disregard the poor hits and berate Thurman for his fielding errors. In later years, many sports writers throughout New York would incredulously sit back and listen to Vernon talk about himself over the accomplishments of his son. His mother, Ruth, Ruth, on the other hand, would dote on her talented son, and she was never shy to acknowledge that her baby boy Thurman was always her favorite. Munson attended Worley Elementary School, where he met his future wife, Diana Dominic, at the age of 12. The two bonded when they had a paper room together, and they were out the same playing catch together. They, they were virtually joined at the hip from day one. Thurman's first ta- taste of baseball came in the Canton Mighty Midget League, later graduating to the Junior Boys Circuit, and finally, the American Legion Post, team number 44, ironically. Thurman was a natural athlete, excelling in football, basketball, baseball, and he went to Lehman High School in Kent, Ohio. He began his catching career his junior year in high school because he was the only player at Lehman High that could handle Jerry Pruitt's 92-mile-per-hour heater. Pruitt would eventually be drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals in the fifth round of the 1965 amateur baseball draft. And Munson would later admit that he just loved to hit. Catching became a means to playing every day. He really didn't care where he played. And he let his development as a catcher just come naturally. Defense was not high on his priority list when he first started playing the position. By the end of his senior year, the scrappy, rough, and tumble Munson, he had options as Kansas, Ohio State, Michigan, and Syracuse offered him scholarships and football. That's pretty impressive. You know, Ohio State, Michigan, that's two big dogs right there. There was serious consideration by Thurman to chase an NFL dream as he truly loved the brash physical nature of baseball football. He, he did have reservations about how his size would play out on the next two levels, though. His senior year at Lehman's, he dominated the prep circuit with a 581 batting average, and he was selected to the All-Ohio team as a shortstop. Arizona and Ohio University, they offered him a scholarship contingent on him making the baseball squad. Kent State was interested as well, offering him a free ride with no reservations about his chances of making the team. And in the end, he accepts the Kent State offer, Due to that fact and the close proximity to his now girlfriend, Diana's Kenton residence. And for three years, Munson is a baseball standout at Kent State. His junior year, he rakes out a 413 average. He sets numerous school and conference records as he is named to the college All-American team. At the end of that season, he opts out to begin his professional career. In June of 1968, the New York Yankees select Munson with the fourth pick overall. Soon thereafter, GM Lee McPhail and team scout Gene Woodling would travel to Canton to sign Thurman with a $70,000 signing bonus. And I should mention to you that seventy dollars in 1968, it has the purchasing power of $610,000 in the 2023 economy. After being drafted by the Bombers, Munson spent the remaining months of 1968 playing with the AA Binghamton Triplets of the Eastern League. At 
This time in American history, the Vietnam War is gearing up into this brutal, bloody conflict. Thurman was required to register with his local draft board. He did so. During the physical, a bone spur was discovered in his ankle, and he was declared unfit for military service. Thurman's pro uh, pro ball transition. As smooth enough as he led the triples with a 301 batting average, which was also good enough for the Eastern League batting title in his very first year. On September 2nd, 1968, Thurman marries Diana, the love of his life and his best friend for as long as he can remember. And they got married at St. Paul's Catholic Church in Canton, Ohio. In spring of 1969, Munson gets his first taste of the big leagues playing in six exhibition games at Yankees spring training. The Yankees were well enough impressed by him that they promoted the young Thurman to the AAA Syracuse Chiefs ball club. Now, that same year, the U.S. government gave Munson another draft physical, and this time Thurman passed. He would eventually be inducted into the Army Reserves, serving as a clerk at Fort Dix, New Jersey, for four months. He would manage to play a few games for Syracuse that year, and he would spend much of his free time taking batting practice at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees would lose catcher Frank Fernandez to reserve duty. So on August 8th, 1969, Thurman was given his college number 15 by Yankees equipment manager Pat Pichihi, and he was activated to the Major League roster for a weekend series against the Oakland A's. He saw his first Major League action in the second game of a doubleheader, and he collected the first of his MLB career hits off of Oakland Ace and future Hall of Fame teammate, Jackfish Hunter. The 5'11", 195-pound spark plug backstop, he went 3-for-6 with a home run and 3 RBI before returning to his military obligations. Munson fulfilled his military duties on August 30th, 1969, and the Yanks promptly sent him to Syracuse, but his stay lasted a whole two days as the struggling Yankees team promoted him for good to the big club, where he threw out 7 of 12 would-be base dealers in the last month of the 1969 season. During that transition winter month of 1969 and 1970, Thurman is obsessed with making the team. So he plays in the Puerto Rican League for the Santurce Congrejos, the Crabbers alongside the legendary Roberto Clemente. That winter, Clemente tells Munson, if he ever hits under 280 on the major league level, he should consider that season a failure. And Thurman would always credit the great one for instilling confidence in his abilities, and he would finish that winter campaign with a three thirty three average for the Congrejos and set himself up with a world of confidence going into the 1970s Yankees training camp. After hitting 300 at camp, Munson lands a spot on the roster as the starting catcher for the New York Yankees. I mean, can you believe it? After a slow start, Munson finishes the season with a 302 average in his rookie year. The Yankees rebounded from a fifth place finish the year before to climbing all the way to second place behind the eventual world champion Baltimore Orioles. In November, Munson receives 23 out of 24 possible first place votes to win Rookie of the Year. 
And from day one, Munson was loved and regarded as a natural leader. He had a great sense of humor. The pitching staff loved him. He was so ridiculously talented that his cockiness was seen as inspirational, and he could get away with it. He was seen as a comedy man who did all the things that the Yankees of yesteryear would have done to win ball games: run, hit, throw, as well as wipe out that double play turning middle infielder when you have to. From day one, the club gravitated to his energy and his confidence. The 1971 season started out well for Thurman, but on June 18th of that year, his medal is tested and his toughness would be established. In a game in Baltimore's Memorial Stadium, his Orioles counterpart, catcher Andy Etcheberry, blows up Thurman in a violent collision at the plate and he is rushed to nearby Union Memorial Hospital. Thurman, who would establish himself as one of the toughest ballplayers of his era, era, He pinch hit the very next day, caught the following game, collected three hits, including a home run. He finished the year with what Clemente would have considered a poor batting average of .251. But his defense was on point as he led the league at his position in fielding percentage and second in the AL with 67 assists. And he was also selected to his first American League All-Star team. And for the next few years... Thurman continued to lay the foundation of his legacy as one of the premier catchers of his era. He hit a career-high 23 dongs in 1973. He hit 318 in 1975. It was during these years that Munson and Red Sox catcher Carlton Fisk began one of the most fierce player-to-player rivalries in the history of the game. The two hard-nosed gamers had a real disdain for one another. Well, well, let me clarify that statement. Uh, you know, Carlton Fisk couldn't stand Thurman Munson. And Munson absolutely fucking hated Fisk. And it all started with a hard slide by Fisk into Thurman during the 1972 season. On August 1st, 1973, the two exchanged punches for the first time when Munson blew up Fisk in a failed suicide squeeze attempt. And a lifetime of over-the-top brawls between the two clubs that go back over a hundred years. This one was one of the most memorable clashes between the two. The teams were identical, or actually, I should say, the two players, Fisk, Munson, they're identical in competitive spirit and determination. Neither was there to fuck around. They were both in charge of making their respective teams roll. But that was where the similarities ended. Fisk was long, lean, refined. A picture of the new modern day backstop. Thurman was a throwback to Yogi Berra. He was short, stocky, built like a tag hit, hard to hit. They were two intimidating souls seemingly built to destroy one another and the teams they played for. They pushed each other. Both rivals pushing the bar up higher and higher while keeping an eye on the, on the other dude's stats and highlights. They even, you know, held bragging rights over one another over all-star votes. They absolutely loathed each other. But in a weird way, they also made each other better off. Yeah, the power of competition. 
Monson was your classic deliberate hitter. See the pitch, read the pitch, draw the pitch. See it, read it, bang. He started every at bat with like this slow, methodical digging of his right foot at the back of the batter's box. And from there, he would tug on his batting glove while slowly stretching his neck and back. And he would eventually give the nod to the pitcher when he was ready to roll. His batting philosophy, in his words, was to look for something over the heart of the plate and then drive it. He always felt he could adjust to the pitch six inches in or six inches out if you're looking over the heart of the dish. Whereas he always felt that if you're looking for that outside pitch and the pitcher comes in, you have to adjust the whole 17 inches. So he always looked down the middle. And he went to work from there. And Thurman understood his role as a major league catcher. You have to be smarter than everyone. You're the quarterback. You have to direct the pitching staff and call a smart game. You have to know each opponent, their weakness and their strengths. You have to see the lay of the land on defense. You're the general. You control the flow. And most of all, It's your responsibility to protect the plate when a runner comes flying around third with their helmet flying off and the right fielder's throw headed to the dish. At the beginning of the 1976 season, Yankees manager Billy Martin named Thurman the captain of the storied franchise. The first player in the club's history to hold that honor since Lou Gehrig in the 1920s. And like a well-deserved leader, Munson was initially hesitant to accept the prestigious honor, and he accepted it almost grudgingly, but he took it serious from day one. Later that year, there was yet another Red Sox-Yankees brawl that centered around Lou Pinella crashing into Fisk at the plate. The Yankees ended up winning the ALEs by 10.5 games over the Orioles. Thurman had a great year. 302 average, drove in a career high, 105 ribs, 14 stolen bases, and that netted him the American League Most Valuable Player Award. In the postseason, the Yankees dispatched the Kansas City Royals behind the sterling play of Thurman, who hit 435 with two doubles. In the 1976 Fall Classic, the hard-hitting Big Red Machine swept the Bombers in four. Both catchers put on a show as Reds icon Johnny Bench finished the series with a 533 batting average, while Munson batted 529 in a losing cause, the highest batting average by anyone who didn't play on a World Series winning team. In January of 1977, Munson and team owner George Steinbrenner came to terms on a five-year contract that paid the captain $250,000 annually. Thurman went on to press later and told them that he had a verbal agreement with Mr. Steinbrenner that would make him the highest paid Yankee on the payroll. $250,000 in 1977 is equivalent to $1.2 million today. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to break out. Give me a couple minutes to hydrate, smoke a cigarette, figure out where I'm headed in Thurman's final two acts of his career and the life that we have left to cover. Pay some bills. Please support the grassroots sponsors who support your grassroots podcast show, BKP, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. BRB, you freaks. 
Don't go anywhere. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tech Gage Geek, executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish board. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap, perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our craft hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back to 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com This thing you had with Thurman Munson. You guys are teammates, and yet you're at each other's throats. Thurman Munson was a great guy, good family man. And Thurman Munson told George, go sign the big guy in Oakland. And so he was part of the reason I came here. As part of me coming here, getting a raise, George was supposed to add to Thurman's money mm. and take him to the same level. You know, and Thurman and I had a meeting, and I told him what I was making. George didn't make the move. Thurman got upset, so that was part of it. Then I got lippy, uh, made a comment um, that they turned into the straw that stirs the drink. 
something that was attributed to me that I did not say that Thurman could only stir it badly. Right. And you never said that. Absolutely not, because a guy kept saying they had lost four in a row to Cincinnati, and he said, uh, Reggie, now, so what's your role here? And I said, well, you know, I, don't, I think I'm the last piece. I'm the final ingredient. He said, so you were like the straw that stirs a drink. And I said, yeah, okay, if you want to say straw that stirs a drink, fine. And right. when but I then said, they got, it, they got oh, attributed boy. to you that yes. you said, I stirred the drink well, and Thurman doesn't. That's right. So did you ever go to Thurman Munson and say, yes. I love you. Uh, you. You helped me get on the Yankees. Yes. And what happened? Yes. Uh, George wanted a meeting, and that meeting took place in the sauna in New York. In a sauna, the meeting? Yeah, in a sauna. <laughs> and then we also met in, in a club in Detroit. But we made our peace. Then oh. the article came out. Oh, no. Yes. Oh. And, and, and that I, destroyed the relationship. And I said, Oz misquoted. And Thurman said, 3,000 fucking words? You were misquoted? <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> and uh, from there, it was just like a Cold War for a while until really we got together and I made a few trips with him on his airplane and you know we oh no kidding yes yeah we flew and you were on the plane yeah yeah we patched up our differences and uh got back together and you know got together took our first look into the young formative years of Thurman Munson. He was born April 7th, 1947, which means a day after this show drops. For me, that's tomorrow. The baseball universe will be celebrating his 73rd birthday posthumously. He's a standout athlete as a kid, dominating three sports, baseball, football, and basketball in his neighborhood and at Lehman High School in Canton, Ohio. He meets his future wife when he is 12, and they are practically inseparable till his last breath. He has a real connection with Diana, and it would literally last a lifetime. 
He attends Kent State University after receiving many scholarship offers in football and baseball. In three years at Kent State, he sets numerous schools and conference records with his stellar play, and he options out after his junior season. The New York Yankees drafted with the fourth overall pick in the 1968 Amateur Baseball Draft. He rises through the farm system rather quickly, despite fulfilling his Army Reserve's responsibilities during the Vietnam conflict as a clerk in Fort Dix, New Jersey. After his promotion to the big club, he immediately endears himself to his Yankees teammates, in particular with his pitching staff, and he becomes the heart and soul gravitational piece of a Yankees team looking to regain their grasp on a throne after 12 years of mediocrity. He won the Rookie of the Year in 1970. He won the AL MVP in 1976. And he's not just a slugging catcher. He has three gold gloves under his belt. New owner, George Steinbrenner, the boss. I mean, from day one, he falls in love with his feisty catcher. I just imagine Thurman walks into his office and, you know, Steinbrenner's got some, uh, you know, some Barry White playing on the stereo. I mean, you know, ultimate man crush. He and Billy Martin, the manager, they proclaimed Munson the captain of the Yankees, an honor that hadn't been bestowed on a player in pinstripes since Lou Gehrig in the 1920s. The hatred between the Red Sox and the Yankees is reignited by both of the club's enigmatic, tough-nosed catchers, Carlton Fisk and Thurman Munson. There is no love lost between the men. It's not scripted. It's not a commercially, uh, commercially generated ESPN rivalry to grab viewers. It is sheer, unadulterated dislike for one another. There was respect between them, but the fine line between hatred and respect was always thinner than a razor blade between Fisk and Munson, and both teams fed on that competitive fire. The Yankees finally overtake the Orioles and Red Sox in 1976 to make it back to the World Series after 12 years, only to be swept by the Cincinnati Reds and the Big Red Machine. And someone asked Red's manager to explain the difference between his catcher, Johnny Bench, and Thurman Munson. And Sparky, who, of course, loves his dude. He loves Johnny. He says, I wouldn't compare any catcher to Johnny Bench. I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone. And the quote gets back to Munson and Thurman. For as tough as he was, he could be a little thin-skinned. He had an ego. He also had rabbit ears. He has an off-season wore words with Sparky Anderson through the press, and Sparky would actually take out ads in the newspaper apologizing to Munson for his statement by proclaiming he meant no disrespect to Munson, but he will go to hell and back in favor of his catcher, Johnny Bench. And I covered that story in the Big Red Machine show. You can find that at diamondsnakejig.podbean.com or on any of the platforms that you listen to your pods. Meanwhile, the boss is watching all of this, and he literally thinks, fuck this shit. I have the best catcher in baseball, and I'm going to reward him with a $250,000 a year contract, which is about $1.6 million a year today. I'm going to go out and get him another game-changing stick, and we are never going to be embarrassed and swept again at the show. And he tells Thurman, no player will ever pass you in salary as long as you are on my team. Now let's go get you another bat. And who would you like? So, Munson tells the boss, 
Go get that slugger in Baltimore. We'll win it all with him. And the player he's talking about was Reggie Jackson, who created his legend with the Oakland A's, but spent a year with the Orioles after the miserly slave master Charles O'Finley began selling all pieces from his dynastic club after the obliteration of the reserve clause. In November of 1976, Thurman's wish is George's command as the boss goes out and signs Reggie Jackson. Now, Munson asks Reggie about his contract, and Jackson is transparent with the captain, gives him the intimate details of the deal. And Munson is incensed when he finds out that, you know, after going through all the parameters of the Reggie's Reggie's deal, he realizes the incentive-laden contract gives him the highest salary on the ball club. And this creates this love triangle rift between Reggie, Thurman, and the boss. During that offseason, the ABC superstar team's challenge between the Reds and the Yankees is televised. Reggie doubled, uh, not only as a participant in the contest with his new teammates, but he's also like this play-by-play analyst for the network. And the Reds would beat the Yankees in rowing, cycling, and tug-of-war, causing the competitive and outspoken Reggie to intimate that his teammates were dogging it and not taking the event serious enough. So, I told you, Thurman could be a little thin-skinned when it came to his ego. And Reggie was a loudmouth. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. All players have their own idiosyncrasies and personality traits. And Reggie would be the first to tell you that he was a mouth. But Reggie had his own challenges as one of the most dominant black baseball players of the 70s in a country that's still finding their racial way and less than a decade removed from the country's civil rights movement. So between Reggie's flapping gums, and Thurman's gruff nature and thin skin, the two were like oil and water. And after the comments on the TV show, fellow teammates Munson, third baseman Craig Nettles, they snubbed Jackson during the final interview on the air, thus setting the stage for the Bronx's burning season of discontent. I don't know if you could say discontent, because it certainly ended out well for them. Let's more or less call it... uh, Drama. Season of drama. A few weeks later, and you heard it right there in the Howard Stern clip I played coming in from the commercial. King of all media. Steinbrenner met the two at a sauna at a lun- and at a luncheon function in Detroit to smooth things over between the two massive egos. Everyone left the meetings feeling better about Reggie's addition to the ball club and the issues seemed to be resolved for the most part other than you know you had two dynamic opposing personalities on the team. Shortly after that, And you hear Reggie explain it from his perspective. A magazine article comes out in which Reggie is perceived to disparage his new teammate, including the captain. Now, Reggie, to this day, claims he never said the infamous stall that stirs the drink, quote, even though it's been attributed to him all these years, nor did he say, I stir well, and Munson does not. Uh, Realizing that the fragile treaty between the two was combustible, Reggie apologizes to Munson before it comes out, and he says he was misquoted. 
And you heard it at the top, and when Monson shoot backs, you know, 3,000 words, and you're fucking misquoting. Get the fuck out of here, Reggie. And with that, cold, and with that, the Cold War between the two became palpable, as the clubhouse was becoming divided, with almost every player solidly behind the captain, while Reggie sat alone on an island. The divided team started out with an abysmal record of 2-8, and eight, but would then win 14 in the next 16 games. Reggie had a dreadful start to the season, which wasn't helping his case with his new teammates. His failure to shake hands after a clutch game winner versus the arch-rival Red Sox and only widened the gap between Reggie and Thurman's team. Throughout the 1970 season, uh, there was a lot of contentiousness in the Yankees clubhouse uh, for the whole year, basically. But... The season was a successful one. The issues between Munson and Reggie were always kind of bubbling below the surface. You also had the boss constantly arguing with his fire leader, manager Billy Martin, over where Reggie should bat in the fucking lineup. Steinbrenner was also hearing it behind the scenes from Munson over his contract and the verbal promises that George had made to him. He was also in favor... Thurman was in favor of Reggie batting cleanup for the team. So, you, you see, even though he has the differences with Reggie and real issues with the boss over this money and this deal, he knows that Reggie's batting fourth is what is best for the New York Yankees. And he begins to lobby hard for it. Now, Monson might be one of the toughest some bitches who ever lived. And I'm not just saying that. It's true. Man, was he tough. No matter the injury... You could always count on 15 being in the next day's lineup. In 1977, he battled through sore knees, a bad thumb with nerve damage, bursitis in his throwing arm, and a staph infection that sidelined him for eight games. He also accidentally cut his throwing hand that year, requiring seven stitches. He still batted 308 with his third consecutive 100 RBI season, establishing himself among the most clutch players in the game. And... Reggie finally gets going with his stick after being moved to cleanup spot at the behest of Nettles and Munson. And he finishes the regular season batting 285 with 32 big knocks and 110 RBI. The Yankees were able to block out the intense media noise and scrutiny and edge out the Orioles by two and a half games for the AL East pennant. They would go on to beat the Royals in the ALCS with Munson batting 285 with a home run and five ribs in the series, setting the stage for the Yankees' second consecutive World Series appearance, where this time they would face the Los Angeles Dodgers. And in retrospect, we all know what happened in that fucking 77 World Series, right? I mean, it was owned by Reggie Jackson. After all the controversy, the cold shoulders from his teammates, the arguments with Billy Martin, Reggie had one of the greatest World Series in baseball history. He batted 475 with five home runs, and three of those dogs came in the Game 6 clincher on three pitches. Munson, nonetheless, was outstanding himself. He had a 320 average, but his performance was certainly overshadowed by Reggie's greatness. Regardless of their issues, the two celebrated the world championship together. Behind the scenes, as was usually the case with the late 70s Yankees, a pressing issue was unfolding. Thurman was adamant in his desire to be traded to the Cleveland Indians, so he could be closer to his family. 
his true number one priority in life. During the offseason, Steinbrenner, not believing for one minute that his hand-picked captain would desert the city for the Indians, he talks it through with Munson, and they both agree that this is where Munson belongs right now. Maybe a couple years down the road, as the career's winding down, we can revisit this. But you got to be crazy to leave this team behind with what is going on now. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but after the boss finishes his pitch, Thurman assured him he would show up in spring training to defend the crown. It was during this time that Munson earned his pilot's license, and he began pursuing the newest passion in his life, and that was flying. And we'll come back to that, obviously. The temperature was mild during the 1978 spring training camp. Reggie and Munson had quieted the feud to tolerable levels, although Munson's autobiography came out in July, and he criticized uh, Mr. Ego, uh, October's ego, and that didn't put them on each other's Christmas card list. In late July, Martin is fired. I covered the Martin Steinbrenner feud in depth on the Steinbrenner show, the whole saga between them. You can go there and check it out. George pivots. He hires Bob Lemon. The team responds well to his even demeanor and drama-free clubhouse style. And they edge out the Red Sox by a game for the ALE's pennant for the third straight year. The Red Sox at one time, they held a 14-game advantage over New York, only to see it go up in a plume of smoke as the Bombers take it to the wire and finish up the regular season with identical records with Boston. The sudden death game between the two teams was played October 2nd, 1978 in the infamous Buddy Frickin' Dent game. And everyone remembers the light-hitting shortstop drops, game-breaking dong all over the monster. To put the Yankees up 3-2 to two in the 7th. What many do not remember is two batters later, Munson has a clutch RBI double to give the Yankees some Geico. And with uh, this two-run lead now in the 8th, Reggie seals the deal with a solo shot. So while the Bucky Dent home run is always remembered in that game, it was Munson and Jackson who were the game's hammer and nail driving into the Boston's coffins that very day. New York went on to beat the Royals again in the ALCS, and for the third straight year, the Yankees were in the show. Munson had one of the most defining moments in the ALCS that year, with the Yankees down by the four in the eighth at Kauffman Stadium, and with Royals third baseman George Brett already smashing three home runs in the game, Munson blasting a 416-foot two-run Dong! All over the Royals pitcher Doug Bird's lips. I mean, it was horrendous. It was in his eyes, his ears, running out of his fucking nose. Munson absolutely murdered that pitch. And the Yankees never looked back. It is still widely considered as one of the most clutch hits in the storied franchise lore. And that's the clip that was played at the beginning of the show with Keith Jackson and Howard Cosell on the call. Once again, the Yankees would face the Dodgers, and once again, the Yankees prevailed in six games after losing the first two. Munson, as usual, had his star shining brightest on the big stage. He had 320 with three doubles and seven RBIs. The Yankees were now back-to-back World Series champions. It had been a long journey to the top. It was a total team effort, but it was Thurman, the captain, 
leading the way. And over the winter, Monson again planned his case to the front office for a trade to Cleveland. And once again, the Yankees had no interest in trading their anchor while defending, uh, you know, now these back-to-back titles. The 1979 season was a bust as the Orioles dominated the East. The Yanks suffered through key injuries and it took a toll on the win-loss record. In early July, he purchased a, a new, a brand new Cessna Citation twin-engine jet for $1.24 million. His intention was to use this as travel from New York to Kansas so he could spend more time with the wife and kids. In late July, Thurman, who had been playing all year with aches and pains in his knees, was sent to the doctors to, to get and take it. Uh, you know, the doctors want to take a look at it. Billy Martin, who had been rehired, of course, this time in late July of 1979, he speculates in the press that Munson may be done for the year. So, with an off day approaching in early August, Munson asked teammates Reggie Jackson. Lou Pinella and Bobby Mercer, who had rejoined the Yankees midway through the 1979 campaign to fly with him to Canton in his new plane. And, I mean, good Lord, a true butterfly effect moment. You know, one of these what-if moments here. The trio declined the invitation due to prior commitments, and privately, the three had discussed trepidation amongst themselves about flying with Munson in his new powerful jet. During the early afternoon of August 2nd, 1979, Munson, who had only 34 hours of flying time in the Cessna twin-engine jet, was at Canton-Akron Airport to work on touch-and-go landings. He was accompanied by two friends, David Hall, who had been his flight instructor, and Jerry Anderson, while he made his practice runs. After two successful landings, Munson took off once again. The third time, though, during his final approach, the air controller at Akron Canton reroutes Munson to a different runway. David Hall would later tell investigators that he was under the impression that the plane lost altitude as Thurman lowered his landing gear. He would also say that he believed they were too low to attempt to land on the uh, elevated runway, which was 50 feet higher than the ground where they eventually crashed. As the jet being flown by Munson is descending out of the sky, it shears off the top of three trees before slamming into a stump on the ground. And in the blink of an eye, the jet spins out a 360-degree donut, coming to a completely stop about 600 feet from the runway. In the seconds following the aftermath of the terrifying ordeal, Munson, like the true leader he always was, asked if both of his friends were okay. They both said they were okay, and then he asked them for their help. Fire and smoke is now consuming the downed aircraft. Panic sets in. Jerry and Allen do all they can do to help the injured baseball star. Still more smoke. Thurman is alert. He's responsive. He's looking at them. Struggle to save his life. Still more smoke. Still more smoke. The goddamn seatbelt is stuck. It's too much. It's overwhelming. The heat. The toxic fumes. The seatbelt will not fucking unhook. It's too much. Self-preservation and the desire... To live, it kicks in, and the two 
leave their friend in the burning wreckage. They tried everything, but to no avail. Thurman Munson, number 15, the captain, lost his life in the ensuing flames while his friends were forced to helplessly watch. His funeral was held at the Canton Civic Center. The entire Yankee team and front office attended. A gold frame photograph of Thurman in a Yankees uniform was placed near his closed casket. Father Robert Coleman of Old St. Paul's Catholic Church delivered the solemn moment, and six of his closest friends in his life were pole bearers. Numerous baseball dignitaries and former teammates were in the audience in addition to the large crowds that had gathered outside the Civic Center. Good night and joy be to you all. Thurman was survived by his best friend and wife, Diana, and their three children, Tracy Lynn, Kelly, and Michael. Munson's good friends, Lou Pinella and Bobby Mercer, recited Bible passages and gave moving eulogies. Although Mercer was so grief-stricken by the loss of his dear friend, he fell apart at the emotional seams and had to cut his speech short. Later that night, the Orioles and Yankees would play in an instant classic. That surely every true Yankees fan of that era will never forget. And even though the Orioles were in complete command of the AL East and would go on to win the AL pennant, the two teams would hook up just hours after the emotional sorrow from the funeral that they witnessed earlier to play a game at the house that Ruth built. One last time. It was like their dependable rock, their beloved leader, was raising their level of play from the grave. They buried him hours before. With the Yankees down a run, his best friend in baseball, Bobby Mercer, the same guy who broke down at the funeral, he hits a solo blast off an Orioles starting pitcher, Dennis Martinez, in the seventh to tie the game. And then he wins it in the ninth with a walk-off single off of Tippy Martinez. Even though 1979 was a tough one for the re-energized Yankees fan base and the team, with all the injuries, and then, of course, the Munson tragedy. For one last time, Thurman Munson brought his beloved Yankees some magic. And I got a, I got the call here of those Mercer hits. Let's check that out. He did drive it down the line. Two-strike pitch coming to Mercer. Ball is hit down to the left side. It's the third ball. Going to the corner. Randolph turns to third. He 
comes the score. The Yankees win 5-4. And so the New York Yankees still the world champions in an absolutely thrilling game. Look at them out there on a day when they buried their team captain and leader who tragically died at the age of 32 last Tuesday afternoon at the Canton Akron Regional Airport. And the hero, Bobby Mercer, one of two eulogists for the Yankees today in Canton. The man who broke up, who couldn't go on. Munson, his leader, his friend. The man who meant so much to Bobby Mercer in the formulation of his own career. And it's almost symbolic without, as I said earlier, Ben Morgan. They won this game for their team captain. That's another look at it. And what a finish to a ball game that became more than an ordinary ball game piece. And you know, emotion won this game. Bobby Mercer knocks in all five runs. And folks, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. But before I do, uh, by the way, Howard could so absolutely crushed that fucking call right there. I mean, I mean, he fucking killed that shit right there. I'm not the biggest Howard Stern fan, in, or I'm sorry, uh, Howard Cosell fan in the world, but uh, he really laid the smack down on that call right there. That's first and foremost. But uh, before I go on any further, I would like to go on the record and endorse Thurman Munson for inclusion in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I think he absolutely belongs. And I'd like to take a quick second to plead his case. First and foremost, I believe catchers are highly overlooked when it comes to the Hall. It's a tough, demanding position. A position that demands intelligence. Like, really high intelligence. You, you gotta be a leader, whether you're an elite catcher or a backup Sunday day game guy, you got to be a leader. You're the moderator of the field, the liaison between the manager and the game. And if your catcher can do all that, then holy shit, you got yourself one hell of a catcher. But if your catcher can do all that and he can hit and play defense at a high level, well, folks, that's Hall of Fame shit. And I'm going to tell you right now, Munson had Hall of Fame talent. I'll give you a stats in a bit, but I'm here to tell you that from 1970 to 1979, Munson was on the same level or even higher as the the other three dominate, dominant Hall of Fame catchers of his era. I'm talking Johnny Bench, Carlton Bisque, and Ted Simmons. I know his career is short, but hey, so was Kirby Pockets. And I don't think death is something that should disqualify you from getting in. Like, you know, Podsquatch told me earlier when we were getting this together. You get hurt, you fall off after a quick start to your career. That's one thing, but not death. And, and, and I agree with him. I think 10 years is enough years to qualify inclusion in circum- certain circumstances. And I believe Thurman Munson is under the umbrella of these certain circumstances. I believe if you're among the best at your position during your era, you certainly deserve a look, and you should probably get in. That's why I have no problem with Baines. After Edgar, he was the second best full-time DH of his era. And folks, 
Thurman Munson was absolutely among the best of his peers. He dominated that era as a catcher. And you don't believe me? Well, I got some facts here if anyone's interested. From 1970 to 1979. Let's take a look at that catcher's position and see what we find. I'm running out of time. I'll leave Simmons out of the equation. Uh, You can look at the numbers. I saw the numbers. Uh, Munson was a superior catcher in the 70s than Simmons. He was a much better defender by far, and his bat was comparable. And I will compare Johnny Bench, Carlton Fisk, and Munson's stats throughout the decade. His decade of brilliance is proven with a war of 45.7. The sixth best wins above replacement mark for a decade in the history of the game by any catcher in baseball history. And every single one of those dudes is enshrined in Cooperstown. He never spent one day on the disabled list, and he is surely one of the most durable catchers of any era. Era? He batted an astounding 330 with runners in scoring position from 1975 to 1978. Three fucking 30, folks. He led all American League catchers in hits for seven consecutive seasons from 1972 to 1978. And again, he was durable and able to rise above from 1970 to 1978. And we all know what happened in 1979 now, right? But from 70 to 78, Thurman catches at least a thousand innings every year with at least a hundred complete games. There isn't a catcher housed in Cooperstown that can share that claim with him. He owns it. It's his. In his career, he caught 1,278 games, of which 1,182 of those were complete. That's 92.5%, folks, of his starts behind the dish he completed. That's just fucking sick. And oh yeah, it's the best in Major League Baseball history. So, he was a record breaker, but it was also historical. His 1970 Rookie of the Year award was the first one ever handed out to an American League catcher. He was the first catcher in baseball history to have at least four seasons with at least 180 hits while catching 120 games. And he did that from 1975 to 1978. His postseason average of 357 is the best in baseball history for players with at least 130 at-bats. And it's 94 points higher than the average Hall of Fame catcher. Thurman Munson is the only receiver in the postseason history with a 300 average. 20 home runs and 20-plus runners caught stealing. So, you see, he's durable. He's record-setting. He's historic. So, let's see how he stacks up against the two Hall of Famers he played against. Johnny Bench had one of the most powerful arms in the game's history, and he threw out 43% of all would-be base dealers. Munson threw out 44%. Innings caught in the decade. Munson, 10,890. Bench, 10,772. Fisk, 7,566. Advantage Munson. Complete games caught in the decade. Munson, 
1,158. Bench, 1,061. Pissed, 809. Advantage, Munson. And again, all these guys all played every single year in that decade. Seasons with 100 plus complete games during the 70s. Munson, 9. Bench, 8. Fisk, 5. Game started a catcher. Munson, 1,239. Bench was close, 1,219. Fisk, 856. Advantage, Munson. Assist in the decade at the catcher's position. Munson, 724. Bench, 610. Fisk, 424. Advantage, Munson. Runners caught stealing in the decade. Munson, 413. Bench, 340. Fisk, 258. Advantage, Munson. Seasons leading the league in assist. Munson, 3. Fisk, 1. Bunch, bench, 0. Hits for the decade at the catcher's position. Munson, 1,536. Bench, 1,396. Fisk, 959. Advantage, Munson. Batting average by catcher during the decade. Munson, 292. Fisk, 284. Bench, 267. Advantage, Munson. At bats, Munson, 5,344. Bench, 3,382. And that's going to Munson. Seasons with 130 plus hits. Munson, 8. Bench, 7. Fist, 3. Advantage, Munson. Let's push that hit, hit total up to uh, from 130 plus to seasons uh, with 180 plus hits. Munson, 4. Bench and Fist, 0. Seasons with a 300 batting average or higher. Munson, 5. Fisk, 1. Bench, 0. I'm running out of time here. Let's go. AL on AL. Red Sox on Yankee crime. Let's break it down even smaller. Munson versus Fisk. Seasons with 350-plus OBP. Munson, 4. Fisk, 3. Seasons with a 3-plus war. Munson, 9. Fisk, 6. Seasons with a 5-plus war. Munson, 4. Fisk, 3. And you guys know I love my total bases. Let's hear. Seasons with 230-plus total bases. Munson, 5. Fisk, 3. Seasons with an OPS of 120 or more. Munson, 5. Fisk, 3. Seasons with 70 RBIs plus. Munson, 5. Fisk, 3. Seasons with 100-plus RBIs. Munson, 3. Fisk, 1. Seasons with 70 runs scored. Munson went 6-4. Season with 120-plus games caught. Munson 8-5 over Fisk. Seasons with 140-plus games at catcher. Munson 7-2. Season leading, seasons leading league and caught stealing percentage. Munson 2, Fisk 0. And, you know, I could go on and on, but... I feel very strongly that I have established an airtight argument to enshrine Thurman Munson immediately into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. 
I have made note of the special circumstances of a short career. And that should not be held against him. I call this the Kirby Puckett rule. He played the toughest position in baseball and he was more durable than his Hall of Fame peers. He was historic as I laid out the facts of his stats and he was at the top of the heap statistically, defensively, as well with the bat. He played for a back-to-back winning historic Yankees teams and he abused the postseason stat box. Plus, he was just a great guy, a fierce competitor, a clubhouse leader, and a great family man, which, let's face it, The Hall of Fame could use a couple of those dudes today. Jim Palmer, Hall of Fame pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Now, your thoughts on Thurman Munch. Is he a Hall of Famer in your book? You know, I'd have to go look at the numbers, but I know, as far as I'm concerned, he was a Hall of Fame type of guy. I used to play in the American Airlines tournament, so I'd always end up playing, you know, quick 18 holes with him in the morning, you know, from practice rounds. But I met, when I hurt my shoulder, I was in... um, 1968, I was in uh, pitching for Elmira, and Thurman was playing for Binghamton. And Steve Klein, who actually had some good years, he was pitching, and I lost one to nothing. Thurman hit a, a double down the, the, the right field line on the chalk and scored the only run. And then we had a guy that we had gotten from the Yankees, Chet Trail, and uh, he tried to steal second base, and I'm not exaggerating, he was closer to first than to second when Thurman Wow. So, you know, Thurman, I, I, you know, he would wink at me, and then we'd go to war, beat me 2 nothing in Shea Stadium when they, they were renovating Yankee Stadium. Uh, he was a great player and a, and a terrific guy. And, uh, you know, I still remember Monday when he, you know, died in the plane crash. We were, I was coming out of a, you know, we were off that day, and, um, uh, you know, tragic because, you know, not only a great player, but... Uh, and, he, and he also played him, played him on that day. Yeah. And it's, we, we do classic. Yeah. I remember with Tippy Martinez. Yeah. No, no, he, Thurman was the best. Uh, and so, you know, uh, Hall of Fame, I don't know, you know, close to it. He should be. Okay. Should be. Uh, whatever you say. Listen, Jim, listen. And I think that about says it all about the never forgotten Thurman Munson. I know this one went a little long. Thank you for hanging in there with me. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling you the story, and I promise to try to be better next week. Uh, Before I break out like a bad case of chicken pox, I thought we'd take a look, you know, one final look at Thurman Munson's numbers here, when, you know, he literally dominated the catching position during the 70s. So, let's take one last look at Thurman Lee Munson. Born June 7th, 1947 in Akron, Ohio. So, a day after the show drops, we will be celebrating his uh, 76th birthday posthumously. He died on August 2nd, 1979 at the tender young age of 32. The boys like to call him Squatty Body, Tugboat, or the Walrus. But most teammates, they just call him Cat. Short for Captain. And here's the thing. I think, you know, it all depends on the generation you grew up in. I know a lot of you listeners right now, Derek Jeter's the captain in your mind. And some of you younger cats than that are, you know, Aaron Judge is a cat. But for my generation, 
Look, Trevor Munson's the fucking captain. Now you ain't gonna tell me no different. Number 15 forever as his number was retired by the Yankees. In fact, his locker was untouched after his death. And when the new Yankee Stadium went up, it was officially eventually moved to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, where it stands on display today. 11-year career with the New York Yankees, 46-point war. As I mentioned, that is the sixth highest decade of war by any catcher who has ever played. 1,423 games played, 5,905 played appearances, 696 runs scored, 1,558 hits, 229 doubles, 32 triples, 113 dogs, 7-1 RBI, 48 steals, 50 times caught. Now, who the fuck is sending him in steals? Come on now, use your fucking head. 438 walks. 571 strikeouts and a 292, 346, 410, 756 slash 116 OPS plus and 2,190 total bases. 1970 AL Rookie of the Year, 1976 AL MVP, three Gold Glove Awards, seven-time All-Star, and dude was playoff and World Series clutch and born to roll. And 135 postseason appearances, three World Series, three ACLs, three ALCSs, Munson slash 357, 378, 496, 64 total bases, including three home runs, 22 RBI, and 19 runs scored. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen's of all ages, this is the story of Thurman Lee Munson, the captain. And look, thank you again for joining me in my dojo and opening your kimonos with me. I, I, I know it gets a little weird in here, but, you know, I don't judge and you don't either. So, as you can probably tell, I am a huge Thurman Munson fan. I, I played catcher in Little League and I kind of modeled myself after him. I tried to. I encourage you to go down that rabbit hole yourself and see what you come up with. Check it out, man. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms wherever you listen to your pods. I will never charge you for the baseball content. Uh, no Twitch. No Patreon, no pay-to-play, crowdsourcing. Uh, I'm just going to come through every week with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. If you're on a platform that gives you the ability to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. You can always reach out to the show with an email to backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can find the show's Twitter page at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter handle is J, is that J Robbie one? That's J R O B B I E and the number one. The Instagram and YouTube channel is at backwards K pod. But I'm usually chilling out with the greatest baseball podcast audience a brother could ever ask for at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private Facebook group page. Answer the questions. Come on in. 
And let's get weird. And with the Thurman Munson show already in the books with a backwards K next to it, I now turn my attention to our baseball hydra and I chop the head of the beast only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. And next week, man, I can't wait. I'm so excited about this month. Next week... I'll be digging into one of the most exclusive baseball clubs in the game. Next week, I'm talking the Black Aces, an MLB fraternity that only has two rules to become a member. You have to be African-American, and you have to have won 20 wins in a season. Just once. Sounds easy, right? I can't wait to find out all about the Black Aces, but that's another story for another pod. Here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. If you enjoyed this show, I have many pods that intertwine with this presentation and my beast ass vault of archive shows. I got the Steinbrenner Pod in there, the George Brett Show, Dan Quisenberry, Calvin Stadium. Uh, that primarily highlights the rivalry with the Yankees and the Royals through the year, the history of Fenway Park, the Earl Weaver bio, the Yankees wife swap show. I got a Bill Lee interview one on one in the YouTube room on Backwards K Pod. Probably other, uh, other that are like, you know, beyond me right now. But look. Plenty of other shows that correlate with the Yankees in the 1970s. By all means, go check them out. Parents, if you see your kid sitting by the couch with their nose in the phone looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Black Aces next week. Yo, my catalog is just chock full of fucking bangers. Just waiting to splooge all over your fucking eardrums. Come and get some. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session at the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.